Well, it's time to talk ptarmigans with Amy Seglin. Amy is a species conservation coordinator based in Montrose who focuses on species that live in Colorado's alpine environment. She worked for Colorado Parks and Wildlife for 14 years now. In 2018, she completed a report of a seven-year study on the white-tailed ptarmigan, a bird best known for changing its color to white during the winter so that it blends in with the snow. The study showed that the bird is doing quite well here in the state, but Amy's concerned about how climate change may affect the bird in the future. You're listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I'm your host, Mark Johnson. The podcast is powered by Great Outdoors Colorado. GOCO invests a portion of Colorado lottery proceeds to help preserve and enhance the state's parks, trails, wildlife, rivers, and open spaces. Its independent board awards competitive grants to local governments and land trusts and makes investments through Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Created when voters approved a constitutional amendment back in 1992, GOCO has committed more than $1.2 billion in lottery proceeds to more than 5,200 projects in all 64 counties without any tax dollar support. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Why, why do you like to stu- study critters at high altitude? Uh, are there any, are any other species that you've studied at high altitude over the years? Well, I have to say that I think I got very lucky in my life to be able to study species in the alpine. It wasn't something that I started when I first started doing graduate school and, and starting in the wildlife field that I would be working in the alpine. So I think it was just a stroke of luck. I have worked on a number of species now in Colorado's alpine. I've worked on the pika that most people are familiar with, mm-hmm. as well as a brown cap rosy finch, which is a small passerine that lives up in the alpine areas, one of the highest breeding um, passerines we know of. And then I've also been lucky enough to work on the ptarmigan. And I like to, I, the alpine's habitat has developed a special place in my heart just because. It's really rugged, beautiful terrain. Um, you can be up in the morning and it's sunny and a beautiful day, and by noon you're running for your life. <laughs> lightning storms and snow start snowing in July. So it's just a really unpredictable environment, and just the beauty is spectacular. Well, before we kind of get into the specifics of the study and what you found, just give us a, a little, for those who might not be versed on, on what a ptarmigan is, tell us about the bird. Smallest grouse um, that occurs in North America. It resides above about 11,500 feet, which is where you start losing trees and it starts becoming a tundra like habitat. Hmm. It nests um, above tree line and lives most of the winter above tree line, which is kind of amazing. It only weighs about 300 to 350 grams, so it's a small bird. And it it's how it defends itself from predators and makes a living in the alpine is that it almost is in a constant state of molt. So like you mentioned, it's white in winter, and so that 
you know, it can just meld into the snow and you can't see it very well. And then when it starts the breeding season, it becomes a brown color, a brownish gray color, so that it can start to um, be camouflaged within the talus rocks and the vegetation. And then in the fall, it molts again, so it's a mixture of whites and grays and browns, so that when you get some of that snow in the alpine, you have kind of the mix of the snow and the browns, and again, it molds back, it melts back into its background. And so it's it's an amazing animal. It can be very tame because of its ability to camouflage, so you can walk really close to it, but most people never see it because it is so well camouflaged, so mm. probably people hiking in the alpine just walk right by it and don't even see them. It really is amazing. Something so small and fragile can live in such a rugged environment. So, so tell us, why did CPW decide ultimately to do the study on the ptarmigan? Really, the start of the study started after it was petitioned to be listed on the Endangered Species Act as threatened. Um, a petition came through, and mainly their concern was climate change. Alpine areas may be very... Um, susceptible to climate change, and so there's a lot of concern about species that live in these habitats. The pika was also petitioned to be listed, and so the ptarmigan followed that petition. So we wanted to see how the ptarmigan was doing with regards to the petition. And one thing I can say for the ptarmigan in Colorado is it's been very well studied. Um, studies were started in the late 1960s and had continued through the 1990s into the 2000s. But one of the problems is, is the alpine habitats are very hard to get to, very steep. Um, there's a limited time period that you can get to them. Sure. So a lot of the studies that have been done have been kind of restricted to a few study site areas where um, you could get to relatively easily. And so we wanted to look at across the range what was going on in the bird. And so we initiated the study just to look at what the, how things were looking for the species. And we were lucky because there, it had been studied for so long that we could like do our research and then compare that to what had been initiated in the 1960s to see if we had seen some major changes in distribution in populations and in reproductive um, output by the, by the birds. You mentioned the ptarmigans living uh, above the timberline, and you were just talking about how the studies had been limited to some sites. Here I'm, I'm thinking about that's an area that you're trying to study that is literally millions and millions of acres here in the state of Colorado. How does one go about kind of with that massive amount of space and a small bird? How, how do you do a study over that, you know, that many acres, if you will? Um, well, I think that's one thing that really bodes well for all our alpine species is the, the, the amount of alpine habitat that we have in the state. I think as citizens of Colorado, we're very lucky to be able to have this amount of habitat. But what we did is to figure out where we needed to go and to look for the bird is we developed a what we call a predicted range model. So we modeled areas where we thought the bird would uh, um occur, so where all the suitable habitat for the bird was. And then we basically overlaid a grid system across the habitat and then randomly selected plots that we would go to. And so then we would visit each of these plots and see if the birds were still in those areas or not. And I have to say, doing these um, 
surveys, I got in very good condition because hiking <laughs> um, up to these sites was really tough, and we didn't limit to limit them to being near a trail or a road. So some of the sites were, you know, a 10-hour backpack in and then, you know, going in and serving surveying for the birds. So it just took a lot of effort, got us in really good shape, but saw some amazing country. I, I bet you did. I would imagine, considering where you're at, um, the, the time of year you did much of this study ha- had to be in the summer months, I would think. And then when you're talking about these birds being so well camouflaged, how, how do you track them down? How do you how do you spot them? So we did do all of our work pretty much in the summer. We tried to start during the breeding time. So we started about the end of May, and there was still a lot of snow, so we had to access the areas on snowshoes, um, which could be a little bit tough when the snow would get punchy in the afternoon, but we would go ahead and try and survey during those times because that's the best time to detect the birds, and that's because the males are territorial, so they will do some display flights and these incredible um, calls, and so if you, we would go out with a tape recording of those calls, and so if we played one and we were in a territory of a male, the male would call back to us or even fly into us so that we could easily detect them. And then we could also find the female once we found the male. And so that's when we started our surveys. But we continued throughout the whole summer. Um, We had birds that we radio collared. We were able to trap them and put radio collars on. So we used those radios to locate the, the birds in a study plot so that we could also look at where the females were nesting and assess how many eggs she had, how many of those eggs hatched, and then how many of those young birds were able to um, survive through the summer. And we could also mark the birds with um, different ID bands Mm -hmm. so we could identify individuals so that we could start doing population estimates for the birds as well. And so we would continue our surveys until we couldn't access the alpine anymore because of snow. Sure. You know, I mentioned off the top there, this was a seven-year study, and, and maybe to the average person that may seem like a long period of time, but I would imagine this has to be a lengthy study, correct? You're watching over a period of time to see how the bird's reacting and acting in certain situations and how it's adapting, correct? Yes, I mean, seven years is probably a very short time to do to really understand a wildlife species because there's so much variability that occurs on the landscape these, um, the, the nest survival and chick survival is very dependent on predation for ptarmigan, and the number of predators can change on an annual basis. So maybe lower numbers of predators one year can increase survival of the chicks and um, the nest. And so there's a lot, and then there's weather variability. We had some years where we had very little snow and very dry summers, and then we had years where we had a lot of snow, and that all impacted the nest success and the survival of the ptarmigan. So there's a lot of variability that occurs out in nature, and since we can't control all that variability, these kind of long-term studies are needed to really try to gain an understanding of what's going on out there, because if you just take one snapshot, you may be totally misunderstanding what is occurring over the long term for this species. And unfortunately, I wish we could have continued even longer because what we've seen over the last three years is some very, very dry summers, which we didn't experience during my study. And I would be Mm -hmm. really curious as to 
how that has impacted the ptarmigan. So sure. it's really great to be able to do these long-term studies, and I would say that seven years is actually kind of a, a short, <laughs> short study um, to really understand what's going on you, in the landscape. You bet. You know, you were talking about years of, of heavy snow, years of light snow. That got me thinking for a moment. When we're talking about a bird this small, Amy, how in the world is this tiny little creature surviving and finding food in the high country when you've got massive amounts of snow? How, how do they possibly survive that? Where are they finding their food from? Um, well, in the winter, they actually feed on willow. There's, I don't if you've ever been up in the high country in Colorado, there's these really expansive distribution of thick willow. Sure. And so they will feed on that, and a lot of people wonder how they feed on willow because the willow will drop its leaves in winter, but they feed on the twigs um, and the little buds that are left on the willow in the winter. They'll also, you know, in winter we get a lot of wind and that'll scour the ridges and they can find food on those ridges where the snow has been blown off and they can feed on the forbs that, and, and little uh, ground growing willow that's exposed during winter. Sure. And then in winter, to stay warm, they will dig into the snow so that the snow covers them so that they have an insulated cover of snow to keep warm at night. And then in, in summer, if there is extensive snow and they aren't able to kind of access the, the tundra vegetation, they'll continue to feed on that willow until the snow melts and they can start feeding on the, the tundra plants up in the alpine and they ha they're amazing because they can change their breeding by about a month. So if there's a lot of snow, they need to put their nest in an area where there isn't snow. So on some years, they may nest really early in the beginning of June if there's not very much net, very much snow in the high country. But they can delay their ability to nest until July if there is a lot of snow and they have to wait till it melts off. They can also put their nests at a little bit lower elevation in snow-free areas if they prefer to do that as well. So they're very adaptable to this variability in snow conditions um, that we experience every year here in Colorado. Boy, nature is fascinating. You know, I said at the top here that uh, you've got concerns about climate issues and how the timing might be affected. Talk a little bit about your concerns and, and, and what you're seeing or, or what you're thinking you may see. Well, I think, like I mentioned just a minute ago, the, the concern I have, which I wish we were still doing some of the research, is the last three summers um, in the Alpine have been extremely dry mm -hmm. and extremely warm. When I first started doing ptarmigan research, I would tell my technicians that they'll never, ever wear a short sleeve shirt in the Alpine, that they will need jackets and hats constantly. And I was always freezing when I was out working and now, the last three summers, I'm in that that short sleeve shirt. It's hot. We're not getting in any of the afternoon thunderstorms that usually come in around noon and cool off the landscape. And so I'm, I'm a little bit worried because even in my report, I had said that, you know, things look okay for the bird. And one thing that I think helps with this kind of variability in our snowpack is that we get these afternoon rainstorms that cool the environments off. It keeps all the vegetation moist throughout the summer. Um, and the last three summers, we haven't seen that. And there is research in other portions of the range of the white-tailed ptarmigan 
where they're really dependent on snow fields because during the day the temperatures do increase and they and and there isn't this monsoonal rain shower that happened and so the ptarmigan are following the the snow fields throughout the summer mm. so my my concern is that um this year also we had really late snow it didn't come till later in the year and we're talking about a bird that needs to be camouflaged and so they do start turning white as they're expecting snow to come and so we did see white birds with no snow which makes them you know kind of obvious predators out there so that could be a problem if their 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 ability to uh, maintain their camouflage is disrupted and i also saw because of the drying out of habitats some of the willow areas that look like they might be dying back a little bit. And so if we start seeing large die-offs of willows, that's going to impact their winter food source. So there's, there is concerns, and I think that we need, as an agency, to continue monitoring. Just because they're doing okay now, we know that climate change is going to be impacting all wildlife species. So we need to keep our eye on the ball and keep monitoring this bird. Well, certainly one of the fascinating creatures here in the state of Colorado, the ptarmigan. Amy, very much enjoyed the uh, conversation and the information. Thank you. Thank you. Well, our thanks to Amy Seglin from CPW, a species conservation coordinator based on the Montrose. Fascinating information on her study of the ptarmigan. Certainly a unique bird living in the rugged conditions of the high country here in the state of Colorado. Remember, for anything and everything pertaining to Colorado Parks and Wildlife, go to our website at cpw.state.co.us. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Outdoors, powered by Great Outdoors Colorado. I'm your host, Mark Johnson. Until next time, get out and enjoy the great outdoors in our beautiful state of Colorado. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is a nationally recognized leader in conservation, outdoor recreation, and wildlife management. The agency manages 42 state parks, 960-plus species of wildlife in Colorado, more than 350 state wildlife areas, and a host of recreational programs from hunting and fishing to the state's trails program, boat registration, snowmobiles, off-highway vehicles, and more. All of its management is in perpetuity for the enjoyment of Coloradans and its visitors.